Hey guys, it's your host Yavitz Djurjevic here. Today I've got a very special, a very long, a very informative episode that, for the love of God, if you don't do anything else with your day, finish this episode. It is a cautionary tale. I interview Robert Blagojevich, someone whose story I know quite well, and every time I hear it, it, it blows my mind. From son of an immigrant in Northwest Chicago growing up, to building a formidable real estate business, to being indicted by the federal government and having to fight for his freedom. It's such a good story, it almost seems like a movie as you're listening to it. You guys will enjoy this a lot. Rob, how's it going? Just fine. I want to thank you for inviting me to be on Millennial Manhood. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm super excited. So for everybody who uh, doesn't know who you are, I've got Robert Blagojevich with me today. You actually authored a book back in 2015, Fundraiser A, My Fight for Freedom and Justice. Give the listeners just a a Rob 101, a 10,000 foot view on kind of your story, who you are, and partially of why I asked you to be here. Well, born and raised on the northwest side of Chicago, uh, born to an immigrant father, first generation mother, Serbian. Uh, my father was a an officer in the Yugoslav Royal Army just before World War II broke out. And he and his brother, who was also in the army, uh, were at the time the Nazis invaded Yugoslavia, were in their village, home village of Krčmare. Uh, in a beautiful area of Yugos- of Serbia called Shumadia, uh, they were notified by the Nazi invaders that they would have to turn themselves in to the authorities or the village would be annihilated. And there is documented proof that the Nazis did that in 1941, 42, 43, all throughout former Yugoslavia and now Serbia. And so my father and uncle turned themselves into the authorities and that resulted in a four-year incarceration in prisoner war camps uh, all throughout Central Europe. Germany, uh, primarily and coincidentally, uh, inspired by my dad, uh, after finishing high school, I earned an Army ROTC scholarship that put me on a track to become a reserve officer. I ended up being on active duty for five and a half years, but I was stationed in one of the towns that he was incarcerated in. So it was really oh, wow. an incredible sort of full circle journey for me for, to have experienced that. Uh, my father was a hardworking man, as well as my mother, who was first generation. My dad was sponsored along with his brother after the war by the Serbian Orthodox Monastery, St. Sava, outside of Chicago. And they were sponsored to come over, given employment. Uh, my dad met my mom at a picnic, uh, got married, uh, had kids. My brother, I've, I've got one brother, and it's me. And the thing that I will always remember was the example that they both gave us. My dad in particular, the work ethic that he brought with him, uh, sacrificing for his family, working hard, always encouraging the two of us to do well in school and go to college and then good things might happen to us. So we had a great example by my dad to uh, hopefully live up to. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, as, as the listeners probably can tell, there's, there's a lot to unpack and just, it's not every day that you meet somebody and say, Hey, you know, I was stationed in the same town when my dad was a prisoner of war. And, you know, I want to take a step back to, to that experience and really think through the life that your dad lived. So he's a POW. He leaves behind his village. I'm assuming, I mean, what did the Nazis do to the village after they did turn themselves in? They fortunately did nothing to them. Okay. Allow them to just continue on and, you know, find their way through the war. Okay. So that, at least they kept their word there. Uh, but your dad never went back to Yugoslavia after the No, he, he abhorred communism. And as we were growing up, always said he wanted to send us back to his village, which he did. He sent me back when I was in college, and I spent a month uh, in the Belgrade area and also in the village with my relatives. It was truly an amazing experience and uh, something I look back on with great fondness. Yeah. So talk about, you know, you've got an immigrant father, a first-generation mother. You're growing up on the north side of Chicago, right? Northwest side. All right. Deep distinction. Yeah, there's a... If you're from Chicago, you understand that. So what was... You know, it's it's a little different growing up as a as a Serbian American in Chicago, where you throw a rock and you hit one, than it would be maybe in Nashville. But what was it like growing up in an immigrant household in the fifties and sixties in in Chicago? You know, great question. Um, I I when, I chuckle when I think back to first being the oldest son and having a dad who spoke excellent Serbian, but always spoke flawed English. Yeah. It was kind of abbreviated English. And so I always, when he and I were together out in the public, uh, I inserted myself and he was grateful for me to be the translator. Although he got along just fine, people couldn't understand his dialect. And so um, he, he didn't let that prevent him from making a good life. And again, being a great example for his sons to uh, exemplify. The the founding, I guess, value in our family, other than loving each other unconditionally, was church, Serbian Orthodox Church. My dad uh, took us to church nearly every Sunday. Uh, my brother and I were encouraged strongly, and if we didn't feel like it, we're made to be altar boys. <laughs> uh, and so we've got some inside baseball observations about the Serbian Orthodox Church, which was very important for my father coming yeah. from his old from his country, uh, because there were other people like him, same experiences, much like immigrants who've come here through our immigration process who've legally settled here, who are trying to find their way, whether it be through some war-torn area in Europe or anywhere else in the world. Uh, my dad valued being here, was grateful for being here, as did all his friends. And so we got a chance to see, my brother and I, what it was like to be an immigrant and then what it was like to be an immigrant child finding your way in the United States as an American citizen, first American, and then Serbian. Yeah. And your parents taught that. I know you mentioned that in your book. They always taught you to be proud of your Serbian heritage, but to always remember you were first American. Yeah, there was that was never lost on us. Um, and it was always emphasized not to diminish our descent, because I'm proud to be Serbian and uh, have nothing but uh, very motivating spirits from that that origin. Uh, but, you know, we were born in the United States. We're American citizens. And the thing that I think is 
exemplified in our family, as it is in many immigrant families, is my dad lived the American dream. He educated, and my mom educated their sons. Yeah. My brother went on to law school. I went on to graduate school. Uh, we took uh, very seriously the fact that the United States gave my dad a bite at the American dream that he's passed on to his kids. And we've tried to take advantage of that. Now, there's a story that you have of that American dream and him trying to pass on the importance of getting an education. Talk, tell the listeners about when he took you guys to the steel mills. So I was in a junior in high school. That's the key time that you started to think about college and selecting, sending out request applications to be considered. And so one hot summer night uh, in Chicago, my dad invited us to come down to the factory where he's working, a place called Finkel and Sons. It's not there anymore, but they were steel manufacturers. And so we got there, I don't know, 8.30, 9 o'clock. It was dark. It was late. So you worked night shift. He worked night shifts deliberately to make another 25 cents an hour uh, for the family. Yeah. So it's just amazing. Uh, as I think back now as an adult father, grandfather, that my dad made those sacrifices. And so he brought us down there and showed us around and explained as best he could what was going on. And in the backdrop of what he was showing were these humongous furnaces spitting out very angry flames, creating not, not, not just that it was hot outside, it just increased the intensity of, of the heat uh, that we were being exposed to. And he kind of looked at us both and said, look, I'm here working for you boys and I'll continue to work here so you can go to college and I'll pay for your college. Uh, but if you decide not to go to college, I can help you find a job here and you could work here with me. And so both of us kind of looked at each other, sort of smirking and looked at him and said, oh, we want to go to college. Yeah. And so that's exactly what happened. It, it's crazy. And my dad told you his version of that same yes, story, but yes. that I feel like that's just a very common immigrant tactic with their kids. So to, to give a little background, my dad was telling the story the other night at church. But when I was maybe, I don't know, eight, seven, it was a very rainy, rainy Saturday. And dad wakes me up at 8 a.m. or something way earlier than I typically got up on a Saturday. And he says, hey, come with me. And I get dressed and we go and he takes me to the bank. So he goes and does just you know, his routine, he gets a statement, he figures out, you know, how much money has come out, how much money they have in checking, etc. And he just kind of has me hang out there and we chat and we spend some time together. And then he says, okay, now we're going to another place. And I'm thinking, where are we going? And uh, we get in the car and we actually drive to a construction site. And we stand out in the pouring rain in the middle of this construction site, looking at all the construction workers. And he doesn't say anything until I say, dad, what are we doing here? And can we leave? And, um, <laughs> He tells me, you know, son, what's the difference that you notice between going to the bank and here? And a smart aleck remark was something along the lines of it's it's uh, it's dry in the bank. <laughs> and dad said, yeah, you're right. And he said, look, both groups of people are working for money. Both are providing for their families. The primary difference is education. So what do you want to do? And that was a lesson I learned at a very early age. So it. I feel like I've heard that story over and over again. Yeah, just... those are formative experiences that I agree are common with immigrant uh, parents who are grateful to be in America because there really is, despite the flaws, despite the political 
ruckus that you read and hear about all day long. This is the best place in the world uh, to earn a living, have a good life, and raise a family. Yeah. And and I've traveled a lot, and I have great experience of trying to compare and contrast. And no doubt, this is the place to be. Now, what did your mom do for a living? My mom uh, never finished high school. Uh, and ended up working as we were growing up with the Chicago Transit Authority. She was a ticket agent. So, you know, there were Christmas Eves that she wasn't home because she was working. Yeah. And and same with my dad. I mean, we, of course, celebrated and we have our family. We had our family traditions, but uh, it was a hard, it was a working class family. And work came first right behind family. So how did that shape your idea of what hard work is? So I mentioned that I uh, got a scholarship and became an Army officer. I spent five and a half years on active duty um, and then spent another bunch of years uh, in the reserves, retiring as a lieutenant colonel uh, after 22 years of, of service. Uh, and, and I give that as background. And then I went into financial services, which when I look at the hours and the sacrifice in what really seemed to be a very structured hourly sort of experience that my parents had at work. They had no freedom. I mean, they were on the clock. Yeah. That anything I did in the army, anything I have done since has been easy. I've never thought of it as work. My parents worked. Yeah. They, they were, um, as I said, tied to their jobs and whatever their employer required of them, they did it. It wasn't theirs to make the choice where I and I know my brother, we've made other choices that have given us a lot more flexibility to uh, live easier, better lives. So anything that I've done since leaving home uh, has never been, felt like work. Do you think that was in the back of the mind of your parents when they were pushing you guys to get get your education, to be quote unquote gentlemen, um, to earn the right to have that freedom that they never had. Yeah, it could very well be. Could be very well be. May have been intentional for sure. Intentional to show work ethic. Yeah, and that you know nothing's free in this world. You've got to earn it. Uh, and I think there were a lot of residual let's say enlightenment that happened for me, certainly uh, as, as a result of their example. Hmm. Okay. So you, you're in the military, uh, you travel out, you were right under, didn't you say you, you served right under a two-star general? Yeah. So I, I was in a Pershing missile unit, uh, which required a top secret clearance. Pershing missiles were a tactical nuclear weapons system right on the tail end of the, the cold war. So we were deployed in West Germany targeting Warsaw Pact countries. I was a young 23, 24-year-old second lieutenant, and I had three nuclear missiles that I was ultimately responsible for and had the codes and all the stuff that goes along with nuclear-capable weapons. Wow. And I was uh, tasked by my commander one day to brief 17 NATO generals who were coming to our combat alert site to just take a look at what the Pershing missile system is all about. And the general that led them was our brigadier general, a one-star general, uh, who heard, and I was chosen to give the presentation, explain to the generals what we were doing, why we were, why we were going through our counts, and so on and so forth. And you know, a week later, I my commander calls me and says, "Hey, 
General Davis wants you to come interview to be his aide. And so I became his aide. Ultimately, my wife and I, we moved from Ulm, which is where my father was a prisoner of war, to another uh, small German community called Swabish Gemunde, a little bit further north. Hmm. Uh, so that gave me an incredibly eye-opening opportunity to see at a very high level in the military what it was what it was like, of course, to be a brigadier general in NATO, but to see how the staff worked with him. I sat in on all the weekly staff meetings, observed these majors, lieutenant colonels, full colonels, uh, scrambling to you know make sure they answered the questions that the generals requested, and if they didn't, and pretended to make up an answer. They got caught by him and learned never to do that again. And I'm watching this as, again, a very young 20-year-old guy thinking, well, I don't want to do that uh, if I'm ever in a position like that. So I learned a lot there as well. Interesting. So what was it like being 23 and knowing you've got access to nuclear weapons responsibilities? The unit that I was in was a nuclear-capable unit, and it was just kind of what we did. Yeah, of course. It was you, normalized. It was very normalized. And I remember a very senior uh, sergeant major talking to me and saying, because I had not gotten my top secret clearance yet. I w- they were doing FBI background checks in my neighborhood. They were very, very thorough uh, scrubbing you to get a top secret clearance. And he said to me, you know, LT, lieutenant, uh, you may not get a top secret clearance because your family's from Yugoslavia, a communist yeah. country. And... I thought, well, wow, that that could be a complicator, but in the end, it they wasn't. They weren't Warsaw, though. No, 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 and he was just, I guess, speculating, and he yeah. fortunately was wrong. I got the top secret clearance, and then I got an even higher clearance when I started working for the general uh, because he had a higher clearance, and I had to be equivalent to that because I would pass on materials to him from his staff or even from NATO if it would come down because I was kind of his gatekeeper. Even though we had a chief of staff that took care of the heavy lifting, I was sort of the gateway into him. Interesting. So you, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility that became normalized to a young man that probably paved a lot of the decisions you made later on in life. No doubt. No doubt. And it and, and it kind of seasoned me with a lot of self-confidence because my right. ultimate takeaway from being on active duty and other crises that I had later in life uh, was nothing compared to the responsibility that I had, you know, working for Brigadier General in a nuclear-capable unit. It was all easy after that. So when you tell your story, you know, son of an immigrant, working-class family, you got a full ride, or you got a baseball scholarship, right? To go it was to an ROTC. Okay, so it was an ROTC, yeah. but you did play college baseball. I did for a freshman year until my arm blew out. Okay. So, and then being in the military, you sound like a typical Boy Scout. <laughs> from like early life standpoint. Yeah, there have been references made in my life to that, and I don't know how to take that, good or bad, but yeah, I mean, I pay my taxes, I don't cheat on my wife, and, you know, I'm a good citizen. Yeah, <laughs> simple, simple <laughs> stuff. But again, millennial manhood trying to not reinvent the wheel and help young men become better members of their communities and families, et cetera. So, so obviously, you get married, um, you guys have one son. Yes, got married right out of college, met my wife in Western Civ class freshman year, and we kind of connected sophomore year and, you know, got married right after graduation, just before I went to graduate school. So she was been tagging along for 42 years almost. What did you get your graduate, graduate degree in? It was in East European Studies and Economics. Okay. Okay. So 
spend, what'd you say, four and a half years active duty? Five and a half. Five and a half years. And then you get into, you know, this uh, incredibly honorable profession of military to, hey, I'm going to get into the financial services industry, which can be good or bad. Yeah. Or and that was an interesting um, transition for me because I had planned on staying on active duty, making it a career. After having worked for a general, I thought, I want to be a general. And so I kind of understood what the pathway was for that, but got very frustrated uh, because there's anywhere you go, there's politics mm-hmm. and there were politics in the army. And I'm not going to bore your audience with the details, but I got frustrated with uh, my commander uh, at Fort Sill after I'd left the general, not allowing me to take a job that was going to be very to be challenging and career enhancing. He told me I had to wait my turn, even though I was granted by the commander who wanted me the opportunity to go. So that frustrated me in the intervening period, my father-in-law, who was a restaurateur, owned a, a restaurant here in Nashville, hmm. said, hey, Rob, Nashville's a boom town. Why don't you come? I know a bunch of businessmen. You know, take your leave. Come. I'll show you all around Nashville and introduce you to people. So I did that um, and was very skeptical. But the experience I had being frustrated on active duty with the politics of it, I decided tough decision. I made the decision to, to, to leave and move to Nashville to become a financial planner. I worked for a local financial planning firm here in Nashville till I got hired by a bank uh, that put me on track uh, to ultimately run the whole thing. Yeah. Not the bank, but the trust group, the money management group. Yeah. And you made it all the way to CEO of the trust group, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. So so we're drastically fast forwarding here, but you make it all the way to CEO and there's new frustrations now. So I'm assuming you're making good money. Um, you are quote unquote at the top of the food chain of the business, but you're not really at the top of the food chain. And there's, there's something that drives you out of that world. What, what happened? You know, one of the things that, and I even stress this to my son and either, and as well as young men that I meet is, uh, sales is not a dirty word. Yeah. Growing up, Sales was a dirty word in my family. The fuller yeah, yeah. brush guy would come knocking on my mom's door yeah. in the summertime and he'd sell her stuff right out of his, you know, his briefcase. And, and then selling, dad gets pissed off. We, yeah, yeah. We thought selling was kind of that. Yeah. And what I learned as I got older, uh, that's that sales is really a really formative experience uh, for men or young men or young women, because it forces you to know the product. Mm-hmm. It forces you to know how to communicate and above all, to be a good listener. And mm-hmm. if there's any takeaway I have from my sales experience and then ultimately a sales manager uh, and then a CEO of a company, and that is the most critical skill that anyone has when they're interacting with people is to take a greater interest than in them by asking a lot of good open-ended questions and listening Versus talking about yourself, which is kind of, I feel out here a little bit doing all the talking. But that was, to me, uh, a very formative thing going into sales that completely 180 changed my mind. It is, to me, probably one of the first jobs young people should have out of college. Teachers, you got to fail. No question. No question. And, and And if you're really committed, not to ever, ever give up. Yeah. That's it's that grit and that grind. Yeah. The, the persistence, you know, you probably don't know this, but it's millennial manhood. And then underneath it, it says confidence, initiative, persistence. And that actually stems from actually, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast. Um, sophomore year of college, I think one of my buddies 
ends up and he, he, his girlfriend broke up with him of like five years. And you know, we're 19. So he hasn't been dating since he hasn't been out in the dating world since he was 15. So he has no idea what he's doing. And at this point, I'm trying to explain to him how to even get a date because he's just like a lost little puppy. And that's actually where I, I came up with this. I said, man, you got to be confident because if you're not confident, nobody will be confident. You got to take initiative because just go talk to her. Then you got to be persistent. She might not like you yet, but work on it. And I remember it clicked and I said, hey, that's actually a pretty good mantra for life in general. So those are the three pillars that we try to work on here, building confidence, taking initiative and, and, and cultivating professional persistence. Because there's a difference between professional persistence and pesky persistence. And look, that's a powerful message, definitely. And it's just not words. There's substance behind that. And if people really think about it, uh, it could be a gateway into good things. Yeah. So, so why, do you, why do you leave the, the investment firm, the trust department, and, and step down as CEO? So my career was a, a fairly, to me, a very interesting one, all based on the confidence I gained being on active duty in the Army. So I, I was hired by a local bank here that is now Regents Bank. And they were, uh, at that time, the biggest bank in Tennessee. They hired me to be a salesman for their trust products and services. I did that, was promoted to be the sales manager eventually. And then some years later, turnover was always in my favor. Uh, there were elements that I had exhibited leadership skills. And so I was made the trust group manager and eventually became the president of the trust company, which we had about $5 billion under, under management. Uh, mutual fund and common trust funds. And that's in the 90s. Uh, late 90s, yeah, mid to so late 90s, yeah. Inflation of just $5 yeah. billion into today. Yeah. And then then I was, because I was Series 7 licensed, essentially the only guy in the bank with that license is I'm learning and I'm la- as I learned and I'm laughing now, they put me in charge of the brokerage business as well. Okay. So I had 50 plus brokers around the state of Tennessee all producing uh, retail with bank customers. So that gave me uh, uh, just a lot of experience here in Tennessee. And then my bank bought an investment firm in Tampa called Invest Financial. And I was asked in 1997 to relocate to Tampa with my family to run Invest Financial as the chairman and CEO of that business. And it was, an, it was really a no-brainer. I mean, my yeah. wife and I went to the University of Tampa for college. Her family was still there. Uh, and we thought, what a great opportunity. And it was. I mean, I five very formative years for me uh, at a very senior level, ultimately accountable for everything, SEC, NASD, Federal Reserve, you name it, we were regulated by everybody. Uh, and I had, a, had, just, I had the staff that I had to obviously manage and make sure they were the right people in the right spots. But over those that period of time, my bank was bought by another bank. And then ultimately that bank said to me that they didn't, this brokerage business was not a part of their core business. And they wanted me to stay to help them sell the business. So I did. Uh, we sold the business in 2001, middle, end of 2001, 2002. And during that time, I was recruited by a bank here in Nashville called Fifth Third Bank to start their investment advisory firm. And I thought, well, what a great chance to come back to Nashville. So my son by then had gone away to college and my wife and I moved back to Nashville in 2002 and have been here since. During my time in Tampa, though, not really thinking, here I am, high level guy, C-level guy, 
not feeling like I owned or man owned the, anything in the company or had as much influence as I wanted to because I had new owners all the time. And during that period, I decided to be open to other opportunities. My son was a baseball player, took him to William and Mary College uh, for a baseball tryout to see if that was something that was a fit for him. I was kind of stressed out at work. We're sharing a, a, a room in a hotel in Williamsburg. And this info commercial comes on in the, like one o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. And it's this Carlton Sheets talking about no money down real estate. And I thought, well, I could do that. Yeah. So I explored, bought his 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 offering for $300, read all that he had to, to say about real estate. I never did anything no money down, but was able to locate a man in Tampa out of the classifieds that sold commercial real estate. And so I started buying small apartment complexes, uh, ended up having a portfolio of about 100 units, moved back to Nashville in 2002, still owned that portfolio, ultimately started a 1031 exchange it into bigger properties to where I left working. I left, I call it indentured servitude, working for a bank or another financial institution when you don't, when you're not your own boss. Yeah. So I left and started my own business, Blagojevich Properties, in 2004. And now I own six apartment complexes, 600 units in three different states, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Alabama. And that's how I now make my living. Yeah. And it was a lot of it was about having your freedom. No doubt. I mean, here I had a big job, good pay, good benefits, good everything. But I didn't feel that I had a real stake in the game. I yep. didn't have I didn't have ownership. And I don't mean financial, but it was always someone checking me and telling me what to do. And at that point in my life I'd had enough of it and wanted to be my own man, which uh, I'm very glad that I took the risk to make that change. And here I am a free man in many ways doing what I want to do. Well and I know you've told me before one of the one of the straws that broke the camel's back is when you know, the board comes in and says, hey, you got to lay off all these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was you had nothing to do with the decision making. You just had to do the dirty work of laying off all the people as a CEO. Very true. And and I did that responsibly. And it's, you know, there was one person I'll never forget that uh, worked in our operations department. We I made sure that the company allowed us to pay severance of X number of weeks of pay. And this one young lady said to me when I had her in my office telling her we were reducing her position, she thanked me. (laughs) She thanked me. And I I thought, well, what a sweet thing to say to me when she's going through this life-changing thing. But she got a little pile of money and she felt that that would offer her transitionary money to go into whatever direction she wanted to in her life. So there were sad moments, but there was an uplifting moment there too. But I was, that was my job. I did what I was supposed to do because my, you know, my corporate uh, owners told me that we needed to reduce staff, made my arguments and, you know, did what I was told. It's interesting. How would you respond to all the young people? And by young people, I mean, basically anybody in their 20s or 30s who are constantly looking for some mission in their work because your parents saw work as a way to provide for the family. You saw work as a way to provide for the family, but also looking for a certain level of freedom and, and control. It's almost that generational shift. And now, Nowadays, it's almost exclusively, well, how can I find purpose and work? Mm-hmm. How would you explain to young people, how do you find that balance? Yeah, it's, I think, unique to every individual. 
what it is that motivates them, what it is they have a passion for. You know, I read all kinds of things, motivational things, how-to things by big businessmen and the titans of industry here in the United States and other other markets in the world who some advocate follow your passion. Mm-hmm. And that can work for some people. Yeah. And that is a wonderful way to go. It's also but very vague. It's very vague and it's very risky. Yeah. And, and some people who take that risk are highly rewarded. Others are sometimes just more disappointed than rewarded. Yeah. And so the path that I took was always wanting to be in charge of something. And so I was fortunate in my corporate life to have been in management, responsible management positions, and then making the transit transition into with what I call FU money. Yeah. Meaning I had structured my departure from the corporate rat race into being a private business owner, the capital to make that change. Yeah. And so it took planning. It took me decades to get to the point that I had the financial, that I could take the financial risk and not put at risk, you know, the quality of life for myself and my family. And that was, I was able to do that in 2004. So I was in my, yeah, my late forties. So it took a long time. I remember the first time you met me, you told me I got in, <laughs> I left the corporate world and got into real estate because I wanted FU money. Yeah, I remember just thinking like, whoa, this guy. Yeah. So my whole mentality was while I was working and, you know, my wife, even to this day, gives me a hard time. We always paid ourselves first. We both worked. We agreed. Whatever she made went in the bank. Whatever I made, we tried to live off of and still save. And so there was an early, even even for my formative years at home with my parents, always told us to save money. Uh, and I took that very seriously. And so my wife and I together as a team uh, sacrificed. And as I was, and she to this day still kind of, you know, says, why did we do that? We sacrificed so much. And my answer to her is now in our middle-aged uh, years that, you know, we've got a lot of flexibility here to do whatever we want and buy pretty much anything we want. But it, we didn't come from wealth. We came from both hardworking uh, class families, uh, and it wasn't given to us. We earned it. And so I'm very proud that here I am again, embod- embodying the American dream, uh, that's available to anybody. You just got to find your own pathway. Yeah. No. And well, and I agree with you. And I think that's the, that's the key is figuring out what is that pathway? Because a lot of the, a lot of the mindset is so vague. So you almost end up more lost than found, but yeah. By following that. So true. And I would say, too, as a, as a father of a not young father, my son, who's a millennial, and I, I know by the title of this podcast, that's a target audience for you. Uh, and I'll say this. I think millennials get a bad rap. 100%. They get a bad rap because the millennials that I've been exposed to uh, exhibit a lot of the work ethic that any parent couple would be very proud of. Yeah, there's always going to be someone who I refer to as a sugar titter, uh, who is going to stay <laughs> home, going to stay at home and live off of mom and dad for as long as they could. Uh, but uh, I think there's so I, I am I am encouraged by the younger generation, the millennial generation, more than I think the average middle aged guy might. Well, I wrote a letter to the audience that I recorded at the end of 2018. It was our last episode of 2018, and 
in it, I, I talk about how part of the letter says that millennials get a bad rap. But in the 34 stories that we had heard in 2018, I didn't hear lazy or entitled. I heard a call to responsibility by every person we interviewed. We've got entrepreneurs. We've got young professionals. We've got people who are professional athletes. We've had the entire spectrum of people, almost men and women on this podcast. And nobody said, oh, I des- I've yet to hear anybody say anything they deserve. Uh-huh. And it's just fascinating because once you give the opportunity for people to speak their mind of what they actually think without having to worry about being manipulated with their words, you hear the true story. And the true story is that call to responsibility, in my opinion. Maybe I'm crazy, but I think. I don't think you are. I mean, I'll I'll be here to validate what you're saying. It's so very true. So let's move on a little bit. 2004, you come back to Nashville and let's quite frankly, address the elephant in the room. You wrote a book that's called Fundraiser A, My Fight for Freedom and Justice. And some people might see your last name and, and a couple of a couple of light bulbs might go off. So who is your brother and why did you write the book? Well, my brother, uh, Rod Blagojevich, uh, was the governor of Illinois. He, mm-hmm. he ended up going to law school. Uh, became politically active as a, as a young state's attorney in Chicago, uh, married the daughter of, very, of a very powerful alderman in Chicago who opened a lot of doors for him. Uh, and so he ultimately went from being personal injury lawyer out of the state's attorney's office to a state representative in Illinois uh, and then a congressman and ultimately decided to run for governor. Uh, I believe it was in 2004, uh, 2002, first, first cycle. So he was elected to governor in 2002. I'd already left and gone. My brother stayed in, and I stayed in touch always. But uh, he took his path and I took my path. Uh, in 2008, uh, I was living a very good life here in Nashville. My business was, was doing okay and offered me a lot of flexibility to do things. And my brother... At that time, my son, Alex, was working for Marcus and Milchap, a commercial real estate firm in Chicago. And so my wife and I started spending a lot more time up there because he was there. And during that time, my brother, in August of 2008, asked me to come to his house because he wanted to talk to me about something. He had been under investigation uh, for campaign violations. He had evidently surrounded himself with people who made big mistakes and were indicted. One was already imprisoned, a guy named Tony Resco, a friend of Barack Obama's as well. Yeah. Uh, and then a, another guy named Chris Kelly, uh, who was a very aggressive fundraiser. And I think he made representations to people that alerted, alerted the authorities that there may be some bad things going on. So my brother had been under investigation because of the people he surrounded himself with for a number of years. She calls me to visit with him at his home in August of 2008, says to me, look, there's nobody I can trust. You know, he's in his second term as governor, thinking about maybe running for third term. There's no term limits in Illinois for governor. And he said, I need to I need to raise some funds. There's no one else that I know that would do it the right way. And I want to know if you'd be interested in you know, just four months, August through December uh, and fundraise for me. I asked some questions and basically told him I wanted to talk to Julie, my wife, uh, because she would be most impacted. She was 
here in Nashville working at Vanderbilt at the time. And I would be spending a lot of time in Chicago. Uh, and I said, if I do do this, it's two conditions. One, I have to enjoy doing what I'm doing. And two, you and I can't be arguing because Rod and I, <laughs> Rod and I are very different people. The history between us, there's brotherly love, but a lot of competition, a lot of arguments. And we were always uh, at odds with each other, but loving. And very different personalities. And very different personalities. And so he said, hey, that's cool. I, I'll do that. And he really did pretty much live up to that, except near the end. Yeah. Uh, meaning in December, there are issues there that really came up between us that I did write about in my book. Uh, so talked to Julie and she said, my wife, Julie said that, you know, I think it might not be a bad idea. Your brother really doesn't know who you are. He doesn't know how accomplished and capable you are. I think you should do it. And your mom and dad would really like you to be helping your brother. Cause there's always this hangover of growing up in our family that, um, my parents told me, you know, you're the oldest son. You're responsible, at least when we were growing up, for your brother. And, yep. and I was. I mean, he gets into a fight in was, the street, you're having to kick ass. He was a hothead, and I was the guy that, you know, protected him as much as I could. Even though he may have deserved to have his ass kicked, I still intervened. Yeah. Uh, and so that was still, as an adult, in the back of my mind. And so I told him yes. And didn't your mom ask you to take care of him on her deathbed or something along those lines? She said that, look, I want you boys to be close when I'm gone. And, you know, don't let anything interfere with that. Uh, and so I did everything I could to try to honor that while, you know, living my own life with my family. Uh, so I did take on the job and <clears throat> responsibly uh, did fundraising for my brother for four months, uh, had all kinds of opportunities to do bad things. Uh, people were constantly asking for political favors in exchange for contributions that's called a quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. uh, that is something that uh, I was advised against, properly so, and wasn't inclined to do it anyway because I didn't think it was right. But I never uh, did anything that would in any way compromise my brother as governor. And I always made a point as I was fundraising to tell people, look, I, I am a part of the fundraising arm, not the government of Illinois. Yeah. And so don't ask me for favors to go to my brother with. And I'm, I never I'm part of a campaign, not yeah. the government. Yeah. But, you know, Illinois politics, Chicago politics is really a combat sport in many ways. And none of that matters. People ask, they're brazen. And mm -hmm. I was always challenged to that and never, ever gave in. Yeah, you, all, you have to be very brazen back. Just the culture up there in general, when I go and visit, it's uh, as much as I love Chicago, it's basically just a soup of assholes. <laughs> you know, interacting with each other, yeah. uh, even though I love it up there. But it's yeah, it's very true. So, OK, August through December is your fundraising. And anybody who didn't live under a rock knows what happened with the investigation and with with your brother. So so what happened? So so spring or winter into spring of 2009. Before I get to that, lay some groundwork. So I interacted with the Asian community, Eurasian community, the Indian community. Yeah. Um, fundraising because they were very, they, Rod, they were very supportive of my brother. I did a lot of activities with them and I was approached on, by two different men in two different situations representing Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. His father 
the Reverend Jackson. Yeah. So I've got these emissaries coming to me saying, you know, the Reverend would really like his son to be appointed senator uh, if Barack Obama wins the Senate seat. I mean, wins the presidency, uh, which he did. And everybody was expecting that to happen prior to the election and was offered $1.5 million in campaign contributions if by the end of 2008, uh, if Rod committed to appointing Jackson Jr., at that time congressman, to the Senate seat, and another guy offered $6 million. Oh, wow. To whom I said both of them, it's not about money. Rod's going to do the right thing for the people of Illinois. Now, during this period of time, unbeknownst to us, we were being wiretapped by the FBI. The end of October, the FBI was able to get a, a judge, federal judge, to allow wiretaps on all the campaign uh, office telephones, my cell phone, hmm. which I still have not changed that number, but that, that was what was surveilled as well as all my brother's phones. And so there were 50 days of conversations that they heard me on and my brother and others. I mean, I had business contacts here in Nashville who have no idea that they were wiretapped by the FBI. But if you were listening to that, those wiretaps, you would know that I was operating properly and that I had told those individuals. And there's a wiretap that distinctly hears me telling one of their community members that it's not about money for Rod. Rod's going to do the right thing for the people of Illinois. And despite that, on December 9th, uh, 2008, I'm sleeping in my bed in that night in the condo that I was staying in. At 621 in the morning, I hear this doorbell ringing. 621, ringing, ringing, ringing. And my wife happened to be there. And I said, I think it's just some you know, guy off the street ringing the doorbell. I'm going to ignore it. Didn't stop. Eventually went downstairs. And there were two guys flashing badges, wearing trench coats, saying they're the FBI. And they're issuing me a subpoena, requesting all kinds of information and documents from me, as well as to open up the campaign office for them that I was working out of. And I of course, it's early in the morning, shocked, didn't know what was going on. And I said, well, what if I don't open the campaign office? Well, we're going to knock it down. We're going to break it. I said, well, let me go upstairs and get dressed. I just had thrown out some slacks and a shirt. And they said, no, no, you, you just come with us. You know, just give us the code and we'll, we'll go. Uh, and I told them, no, it's cold. It was rainy, freezing. It's December in Chicago. Yeah. I said, I'm going to go up and put some clothes on. In the meantime, we call, in the meantime, my wife, Julie, calls my brother's house, and we find out Rod was arrested mm. by another group of FBI agents. And so that began the ultimate test of um, my ability to withstand the pressure of a federal indictment, because ultimately, Rod and I were both indicted in February of 2009. He and I together conspiring to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat to the highest bidder, which was absolutely absurd and not true. And he was indicted on other yeah. charges as well. And he, we ultimately went to trial. So I know one of the things that you've talked to me about before is when those Indian members, in, Indian individuals um, approached you on behalf of Jesse Jackson and Jesse Jackson Jr., you almost dismissed them thinking of your father's generation as Immigrants who don't know how America works, how in the old country you can buy things, but in America you can't. You've still got that quote. I don't mean this is insulting, but Boy Scout mentality. 
almost. The, the I'm a military man. I'm a I'm a CEO of a company. I leave the now I'm the owner of my own company. This is just them being having that immigrant mindset. And so we'll go. We'll fast forward to the trial. So Rod and I were on trial in uh, 2010. Yeah. Uh, I testified mm-hmm. on my behalf. Oftentimes, more often than not, defendants don't testify because it's a risky proposition. My lawyer, who there's a whole story behind. I was about uh, to say, I want that, you to tell the story. Of the lawyer uh, too. Said, look, you're the kind of guy that needs to testify. We're going to get you ready to testify. So I testified for two days. Um, and one of the questions came up about these people who approached me and what I thought they were trying to accomplish representing the people that they were representing and why I didn't contact the FBI and report it. Yeah. And my response was, I said, you know, they reminded me of the Keystone cops because they were very much like the Serbian immigrants that I saw in my father's circle of people who didn't understand the way America worked. They came from an old style, different way of living that bribery and money would maybe get you opportunities that you otherwise would not get. And these guys seemed to me to be harmless. There was to me nothing criminal. They were just outside their skill set and their capability set. And so I told them I I dismissed them, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what I did. But the FBI, the Department of Justice, were making it sound as though uh, I was being lured by them to uh, take money on behalf of the, the Jackson representation uh, that if Rod appointed Jesse Jackson Jr. to the Senate seat, that we would get some money. That was never going to happen. And I made that very clear over the two days that I testified. Well, and it's crazy because there's something so powerful to be said about that. So I'll, maybe some of the Americans listening or maybe all that, they, they can't wrap their head around that. But I have personally seen my dad bribe the cops in the old country. In Bosnia, fun fact, you get pulled over, you pay the cop. You don't pay a ticket. You give the cop money. Okay? That's what you do. Yeah. Otherwise, they kick your ass. Yeah. Like, that's how it works. So it, there really is this entirely different mindset that one has to understand and and wrap their head around. And you had a really good attorney who who you paid a lot of money to. Mm-hmm. So, and I know you've said, you mentioned in your book, you've mentioned it to me, you've, you had all kinds of corporate attorney relationships, but you had never dealt with a, a criminal defense attorney. And now you're having to find somebody. I mean, you're, you're going up against the U.S. federal government, okay? How on earth do you keep your sanity as, as going from somebody who's never been in any form of legal trouble to facing, I don't know, five, six, seven years in jail? How do you keep your sanity? Well, it, you don't do it by yourself, um, but you have to believe in yourself, ultimately. Uh, and I was very fortunate that I had that available to me. The th- there were many things that fueled me. Uh, one was I was absolutely pissed off that the government, my government, that I was loyal to, that I served in the military, that I paid taxes to, and always gave the Department of Justice the benefit of the doubt. I figured anytime somebody gets indicted in federal court, they had to have done something wrong. Yeah. And if you at all have any idea of the, our criminal justice system, it's broken. The, the federal government, when they indict someone federally, they have a 96% conviction rate. So I was facing a 4% odd of possibly walking away with my freedom. And so that took 
a lot of mental uh, organizing, life's organizing. And I remember having a conversation with my son after I just had a conversation with my wife, Julie, and my son, Alex, together saying, look, after I had been indicted, I don't know where this is going to go. I just I couldn't live with myself if I had done anything wrong and didn't tell you. Let me tell you, I did nothing wrong. If I did, I would tell you that. And of course, they embraced me and believed it, never even thought differently. And then after that, I, I had asked Alex, I said, look, I need a plan. And I fell back on my military and my corporate experience. I mean, you don't start a year without a plan, whether you know, you're planning organizational management in the army or for sure corporately, there's always an annual plan going budget, capital, so on and so forth year over year. And I told Alex, I said, look, I don't know that I can sit down and focus on this right now. Why don't you kind of scratch out a plan for me to follow? And he did that. I gave him input, but we came up with a plan that essentially organized my priorities for the time that I was going to be in legal jeopardy, getting ready to go to trial. That plan, uh, prioritize things. Number one, ultimately, most importantly, uh, I had to win a trial. So anything related to preparing for trial, that was the number one priority. Second priority was making sure that my business stayed as solid as it could, but I offloaded a lot of responsibility to people that I could trust to help me with that. And another organizing element to that was to take care of myself physically because mm -hmm. there's incredible mental stress that came with that. Initially, uh, when my brother was arrested and the day I was uh, awoken by the FBI, uh, I could not eat. I'd lost my appetite. I lost 10 pounds. Uh, my heart would not stop racing. I remember going to a, still in Chicago before we came back to Nashville to prepare for trial. I remember going to a Wal Walgreens in the neighborhood there and put my arm in the blood pressure sleeve to test my blood pressure. I thought, you know, something's going on. My heart just won't stop racing. And fortunately, my blood pressure was fine. Shocked to me, but I thought, okay, that's one less thing I got to worry about. Uh, but ultimately visited with my doctor and he kind of gave me some tips on how to deal with the fact that I couldn't sleep. Gave me a very low dose sleep aid that really was powerfully impactful for me because I would get a good night's sleep because you can't prepare for trial unless you got your head in the right place. So taking care of myself physically and mentally was very important. Came up with a workout regimen. I was always physically active and had done stuff, but I never formalized it as much as I did now getting ready for the big game, basically going to trial. I was in training to get ready for trial. So I you know, made sure I worked out, lifted weights, ran, ate right. And even during the trial, I as much as there were days where it was hard for me to get up, I got up every day at 5.30 and either ran or went down to the gym and worked out. I mean, I, we didn't live too far from the lake, so it was kind of nice to go clear my head running around the lake. Uh, as you're a local celebrity, basically. Well, fortunately, I they, they knew my brother far better than me, <laughs> yeah. and so no one really bothered me except for the people that kind of knew who I was. Uh, but that, to me, was not only physically and mentally helpful, but it, it really fueled me because I felt it gave me an edge every day I went to court looking at those prosecutors who were trying to put me in prison Yeah, that I know I worked out today and they didn't. Yeah, And that just gave me a little baby mental edge every day that helped me keep going. Wow. That is powerful. I worked out and they did. Yeah. That, that's, that's one hell of a mental edge. 
it helped. Yeah, it definitely helped. Well, and, in a high stress situation like that, you need to find anything that you can, because quite frankly, you've called yourself naive. You were ready to just go talk to the FBI and explain to them, Hey, this has got to be a mistake. And your attorney said the hell you are. Yeah. There, there's a neat little story here. So I, that morning that we, my brother was arrested, uh, a family friend lawyer called me and said, Rob, you need to get a lawyer. I said, for what? Well, you were mentioning this criminal complaint. Typically what the DOJ does is they publish a criminal complaint. I was referred to as Fundraiser A. That's why the title of the book is Fundraiser A, which I didn't know that that's who they were referring to initially. Uh, And he said, you need to get a lawyer. So I started lawyer shopping, did some shopping here in Nashville, uh, but talked to a couple of attorneys in, in Chicago who were criminal defense attorneys, one with a big firm and one with a small practice. And the guy that I chose, Michael Ettinger, uh, had been doing criminal cases for over 30 years out of a small office in, in the south side of Chicago. And so the, the initial meeting that I had with him was at a restaurant in Skokie called Chappie's. I say that because it's seared in my mind. I was lost, couldn't find the place, but I did get there on time to see him and meet him. And he was very nonchalant. He said, look, my wife's not cooking dinner for me tonight. So I'm going to eat my breakfast. I'm going to have breakfast for dinner. Uh, what do you want to eat? Well, I'd lost my appetite. I was just drinking coffee. He ordered scrambled eggs, hash browns, and bacon. Okay. okay? That's important because during the conversation that he's, he's telling me, you're not going to talk to the FBI. They All they want is to corner you uh, and catch you into a lie, which is what they do. And if you follow anything that's going on in Washington, D.C. today, you can you can see the roadmap. Mm. It's there because I was naively going to, as I told Michael, Mike Ettinger, said, look, I, I got all this stuff. There's a big mistake going on here, misunderstanding. Let me go in and explain it to them. I've got all this stuff to give them that they've requested. He said, if I'm going to represent you, you're going to plead the fifth and we're not going to talk to the government. They're Rob emphasized, they're not your friend, they're your enemy. And that was a seminal moment for me to realize that I was in real trouble because I trusted the government. Why would they do this to an innocent man? And it didn't matter. Ultimately, they wanted to leverage me against my brother that they weren't able to do. And so during the time he's telling me all of this, he's eating scrambled eggs and he's got a little piece of yellow scrambled egg on his lower lip. And he's then t- intensely telling me, the gu- Rob, hear me, the government's not your friend. And so I'm watching this guy with passion and experience telling me with a piece of yellow scrambled egg on his lower lip that the government is out to get me. Yeah. And and I put I put that in the book. His family loves that story. And anytime he and I have done stuff in Chicago, book related or talking to law firms, I always bring that up uh, because it's, it's humanizing. Mm-hmm. He was a fierce pit bull in the foxhole with me. He was always there with me, uh, but there was always a humorous side to him as well. And that was the beginning of my education with Mike at that restaurant in Skokie, Illinois, about what I was up against. And it was, truly was Goliath. The unlimited resources of the federal government were brought down on us uh, trying to get my brother and I to plead guilty to something for sure I didn't do. Uh, and we ultimately went to trial. Well, and 
it's interesting because so I've got a decent pulse on the city of Chicago just because I'll spend a decent amount of time there and I know several people there and you're a very sympathetic figure in that city. I know for a while after your book came out, you know, people were buying you lunch if they saw you somewhere. I mean, you're almost like a folk hero in a weird way, or at least you were at that at that point. But there's a lot of things that happened during that time, during that trial that are so incredibly sketchy on the government's behalf. They didn't let you guys have separate trials initially, correct? No, I, I had requested what's called a severance from my brother. I wanted to be severed from him mm-hmm. because during the time that we were getting ready to go to trial, my brother was doing a lot of high profile interviews. He was on Donald Trump's The Apprentice. He was on David Letterman one night. I get a call from a good friend of mine here in Nashville. He said, hey, Rob, I saw your brother on Letterman last night and I heard your voice. I said, what are you talking about? My voice. Yeah. They played an FBI wiretap with you and your brother talking uh, about some fundraising thing that you were doing. And that was a very different approach than the one you took. Than the one I took. And I called my brother immediately. I said, I, I called him. He said, hey, did you see me on Letterman last night? I said, no. I know you're on because I got this call. What the? And I swore at him, are you doing doing these shows? They got a wiretap of us and we look like we look like criminals based on what they chose to play. Yeah. And that was the beginning also for me of a conflict that Rod and I had is style differences leading to trial that made it very difficult for me as a brother uh, in many ways. But the, the thing that I'm most proud of is the government wanted me to cut a deal with them with what was called a global solution. I asked my lawyer, what, what does that mean? Global solution? Well, they want you to talk to your brother, have you guys figure out what, deal you want to cut and avoid going to trial. I said, I got no deal to cut with them. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong with my brother. No, tell them we're going to trial. Which takes massive balls. <laughs> to, to think. But that's, you said 96% success rate. That's where the success rate comes from. People cut deals with the government. True. Because they don't want to go to trial. Because they don't have the funds. They don't have the attorneys. They don't have the experience and they're terrified. Very true. And they're, they're by, by the estimate of one retired federal judge, his estimate is there are 200,000 people in prisons today who are innocent and they know they're innocent, but they pled guilty because they were so intimidated by the system. And um, I was of all the good things, again, family, uh, friends rallied around me and supported me. The thing that fueled me the most was the anger I had for what the government was doing to me. Mm. And I had to contain that even when I even when I uh, testified uh, in federal court to keep my cool so that I didn't um, maybe deviate from what was really most important. That is telling the truth and doing it in a respectful, professional, businesslike manner, which I was able to achieve despite the anger. Well, I know if I'm not mistaken your attorneys made sure that whenever you were addressed, you were addressed by Robert, not Rob, because you didn't want the jury to confuse Rod and Rob. Um, and just the fact that you testified as a defendant is a, is a very large statement because your attorneys knew you were a sympathetic figure. And the beauty of that and the, 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 the brilliance of what my staff of lawyers, I had three lawyers, Michael Ettinger, Cheryl Schroeder, Robin Malaro. They are, I call them my guardian angels. We are still friends today. We talk all the time. It was a bonding experience for us. Um, his, his 
preparation of me to get mentally focused on how to testify um, wasn't easy. I mean, it's not easy to go up there and testify, even though you know you didn't do anything wrong, because there was a we we had practiced mm-hmm. some. And I even write this in my book. My son, Alex, is sitting there. And I told Mike, I, come on, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Just cross-examine me. I, I'm ready. Because you're, you're not ready, Rob. You're not. Just cross-examine me. And so he very quickly started cross-examining me on the facts. And I got confused from mm-hmm. his questions. I wasn't listening to the question. And even my son, Alex, said, Dad, tighten up. Listen to the question, yeah, which was so consistent with how I raised him because mm-hmm. tighten up was a part of what I used to tell him. So here, the irony of it is I'm getting ready to face the Goliath, the federal government, and I really have a lot more work to do. And that's the brilliance of my my uh, legal team to get me ready to do that, because after I had testified, it was clear I did nothing wrong in the Chicago media, who prior to that really didn't know who I was. I mean, I was... They was always they were always hounding me for interviews. I did some very select interviews during the time that I was the day I was arraigned, but we stayed away from the press except for one interview with the Chicago Sun Times the fall before the trial or the spring before the trial. Um, but after I testified, I had a number of crusty court reporters for the lead networks in Chicago take me aside and say, "Look." We don't, we don't think you did anything wrong. And if something bad happens to you in the verdict, we are going to come out and support you, which was unbelievably uplifting mm-hmm. uh, and absolutely unexpected. So interesting. And so you, I mean, you've lived in Nashville for a long time as well and are known well in the community. You were chairman for the Red Cross at one point. The people that I've met in this community who know you, know you as a stand-up guy. I know you wrote this book because your wife wanted you to share your side of the story for posterity. And I know that you also wrote it as a cautionary tale. Would you like to tell the listeners how much you spent on your defense? Yeah, just under a million dollars. It was almost a million dollars. Okay, let's contextualize that. A million dollars spent on your defense. Most people do not have a million dollars. That cautionary tale, it's just about it can can happen to you and, and you don't even know how to handle it. And if you hadn't kept your sanity through your plan through your daily action steps, through having worked out and the fat prosecutor not having worked out or whoever it was, you might have spent a million dollars. It's not like the government reimburses you the million dollars. They're also taxing you along the way. (laughs) So they're using your money to prosecute you and you're using your own money to defend yourself. What happens? You and Rod go through a trial. What's the verdict? So we were on trial for four months. It took the jury three weeks. Three weeks. We're sitting on pins and needles waiting for a verdict. So we're just hanging around Chicago. My instinct was to come back to Nashville. Of course, we didn't. Um, And so on August 26th, correction. So the jury, the jury came in at the, in the, um, the end of July, end of July, early August. What year? 2010. Okay. With a hung outcome. So they didn't find me innocent, but they didn't find me guilty. As it turns out, we learned it was nine to th- so there are 12 jurors of my peers, which is really a misnomer. Uh, I write about that a little bit in the book. I'm not going to belabor the point here, but a jury by your peers is a very nice ideal to live up to. But when it comes to practical application, that's never the case. At least it wasn't for me and my brother. So they came back home. I learned later that it was nine, three in favor of my acquittal. Okay. But those three holdouts meant that 
I had to be retried. Mm. Rod was found guilty of one charge, lying to investigators. He went in to talk to the FBI many years earlier under oath, and evidently the government proved that he had not been truthful in that interview. And so the jury found him guilty on that one charge of, I had five charges against me. Uh, Rod had uh, just under 20, I think 21 or 20, 21, something like that. He had a lot more charges to defend, found guilty on one, which meant retrial. Mm -hmm. So we had to wait around Chicago another two weeks for the, the hearing that would determine when the next trial would be. The hearing was scheduled uh, on August 26th. Now, have they ha have the prosecutors between that and before the hearing, have the prosecutors reached out to you again about a global solution? Uh, good question. So we're waiting and I get a call from Mike the day before the hearing. Mm -hmm. He said, look, I, I just heard from the lead prosecutor. They're willing to give you a severance. The severance, again, I wanted to be separated from my brother because I didn't want to be associated with his with his approach to the trial. My lawyer disagreed with that even. He said, no, you need to be tried with your brother. This is in your better interest. Trust me, I know what I'm Comparison, talking about. Comparison, contrast. Yeah, look and I hate to him. make that point, but that was his point. And so the government, when we request, I made them request it. The government denied it. Okay. So the prosecutor said no, and the judge just said, I agree with the prosecution. You're going to be tried together. So the day before the uh, hearing for the retrial, I get this call. Lead prosecutor says, hey, we're going to give your guy what he wants, a severance from his brother for yeah. the next trial, except the caveat being we're not going to try him until after the governor has been retried. Mm. And so my lawyer uh, shares that information with me, and he's telling me, Rob, we don't want this deal. We're not going to take this deal. And I asked them a lot of questions because my role, the thing that I found myself doing, and I commented on this in the book as well. I was not the subject matter expert in the law, yeah. especially the criminal law. That's what I hired three good lawyers for that I held accountable in many ways, and they held me accountable in many ways. And so I felt myself to be kind of the, the, the CEO of my legal experience, the lawyers, me, and other constituents that might be playing into my, my, mis, uh, my situation. Uh, so Mike is on the phone with me telling me we need to we need to take the deal. I'm saying, look, I want to be I've always wanted to be separated from Rod. Say, Rob, the government is not going to give you anything that you want. They have an agenda here. They don't want you tried along with your brother because you were so effective in hanging the jury, hanging the jury and testifying on your behalf. It was good for your brother. And. I asked him a lot of questions. He gets the other two lawyers on the phone. I got Julie on the speakerphone on my my phone, and they're yelling at me. Rob, listen to Mike. Don't take their deal. Agree to go to court, go to trial again with your brother, which would have meant coming back to Nashville, selling our home, which we had already mortgaged as much as we could to pay for the to pay for uh, my fees up to that point. Uh, and so I had a lot of work that I needed to do to get ready for another trial. So I said, look, Mike, let me think about this. Talk to Julie. Go talk to a guy named Ed Jensen, a, a really well-known criminal defense attorney in Chicago that Mike uh, respected. Please find out what Ed thinks and then call me back. In the meantime, I talked with Julie and I told her, I said, look, I said, we've never been in this situation before. I have no instincts for this. I think we need to listen to Mike. 
So he called back, said to me, Rob, I think you need to take the deal and not the deal, but go to trial. Yeah. And we agreed. So the next day. Um, so that was all the day before the hearing for the next trial. Yes. The okay. day before the hearing for the next trial. He said, you don't need to go. I can go by myself. This is just procedural. And the- so, so hold on right there. They gave you less than 24 hours of from offering the deal to wanting to having the hearing for the next trial. It's not that they gave you three weeks to think about it and figure it out. It's, oh, here's a here's a nice little package less than 24 hours ahead of time. It, and it speaks to what Mike said to me. The government's not your friend. They're not going to do anything that's in your best interest. And they always play out the clock as long as they can to their advantage, yeah. which is exactly what they did throughout the entire experience. Yeah. So uh, the, the hearing was scheduled on August 26th at 11 o'clock. Uh, that's significant because during the trial, I, to help me maintain my mental focus, uh, I kept a journal. So I wrote observations, frustrations, uh, things that were noteworthy to the, to the, the day that I was writing about what was going on in court, witness observations, so on and so forth. And I had written also... Um, out of frustration, the number of minutes every day the judge was late. So here I am in federal courts. I got three lawyers paying them a good amount of money, babysitting me because we're on time every day, waiting for the judge who on average was late 40 minutes a day. Now, that may not be a big deal to a lot of people, but 40 minutes a day times whatever that number ended up being against the hourly fee I was being charged by my lawyers cost me fifteen to $20,000 more in legal fees because the judge was always late. And that was very frustrating to me. So 11 o'clock was just the time that the, the hearing was going to start. I figured the judge would be late. I wouldn't be hearing from Mike until early afternoon. In the meantime, we were staying in this condo that had two sinks in the bathroom one never really worked. So I was under the sink trying to buy time waiting for Mike, working on a plumbing issue. And the text uh, signal went off on my phone that was sitting on the on the counter of the, of the sinks. And I got up and looked at it. And it said 11.01. It's done. It's over. The government dropped their charges on you from Mike Ettinger. So he had just been told by the prosecutors before he went in to go before the judge, that they were going to drop their charges against me. The government was playing chicken with my life the day before by offering the severance, if only if I would wait till after Rod's trial, because that was to their advantage. And they were supposedly dangling something that was going to be good for me, but in fact, it wasn't. So it was better for them to drop the charges because you were a more sympathetic figure in a trial in their case against your brother than it was to, wow, than it was for them to actually try. So they actually didn't give a crap about justice. No. Is what you're telling me. No, not at all. And that's one of the many takeaways of mine uh, after having now almost a decade to to refresh on and reflect on that the government really isn't your friend. These prosecutors are in that only to win and they manipulate the law and laws are so vaguely written. Uh, it's a whole different podcast. We can talk about that, about how the how the laws are written to such advantage of the, the government against the citizen. And so I was very lucky 
that on that day, the government dropped their charges on me and I was a free man to go live my life again. And I very proudly, proudly say that I'm one of the 4% people who walked away uh, from a federal indictment. It's like Winston Churchill said, life is all about interest. What are your, and, and you can look to any, um, any decision made by anyone engage what, what are their interests? What are they trying to achieve? And then you can, you can reverse engineer their, their behavior. You speak to a lot of people across the country. You've done talks to law firms, law schools. Uh, like I said, you're like this weird folk hero in Chicago at this point. What has been the response to you from the legal community? For sure, the legal community in the Chicago area who were more, most exposed by it uh, said that you had a good lawyer. Yeah. You listened to your lawyer uh, and you defied the odds. Yeah. And um, what the one-on-one -on -one dinners that I may have had with some attorneys over the years while I've had been in Chicago was for me a very intellectually rigorous thing because I kind of knew what I was talking about as a defendant. I'm not yeah. a lawyer, yeah. but I mean, I've got a real inside baseball understanding of what it's like to be tried in federal court. And it's been quite, quite a journey for me because I've had people call me from around the country who've either heard me on a podcast, heard me speak someplace or read my book, who's, who may have, may have had at the time they called me a family member who had just been indicted by the federal government. And they found inspiration from what they may have heard from me, read in my book. And so, you know, I'm available to anybody who yeah. is up against Goliath because it's an unfair match. You, you really don't stand much of a chance, but there are ways that you can prepare yourself and understand what you're up against. Uh, if you know, you want to talk to me or read my book. So August 26th is your personal independence day. It is that. And every day, every August 26th, uh, I sit in my backyard and I, and I have a quiet bourbon and a, and a cigar and I toast myself because this is my an in, independence day. And I always call my lawyers on that day and I thank them for what they did for me. And I told them this year uh, that in on August 26th, 2020, we're going to have a 10 year reunion of our battle against Goliath uh, in Chicago on me because I'm still that grateful for what they did for me all those years ago. Well, and for them, it's great on their resumes. How many attorneys can say that they, that they're in that scenario? You know, it's funny. Uh, and I, Mike Ettinger and I have a great, a very great relationship and he's gotten business as a result of defending me and coming out the winning attorney, even though yeah. I never felt that we won at the time. Mike said, look, Look, we beat the government. You won. I said, I, they, I didn't get acquitted. I don't feel like I won anything. Rob, we won. They never do this. And so uh, Mike got a lot of business as a result of it. And I, I jokingly said to him, I, look, you ought to give me a percentage of this business that you're doing now. <laughs> get a commission. Because, yeah, because I, you know, I think I had something to do with it. A little it. referral fee for yeah. the book. And I'll also insert this. And I wrote this in the book as well. Uh, having been in the corporate world, I and a lot of good people are motivated by incentive pay. Yeah. So I told my lawyers during the trial, I said, look, you get me off by Labor Day 2010. I'll pay you a winner's bonus. And um, they did. And they did. And I paid them a bonus. And it was a pretty nice one because uh, I told them I pay for performance. 
if I can be home by Labor Day, uh, I'm going to do this. And never, you know, they thought that was I was kind of clueless and naive, but I'll be damned. It happened. So so the charges have dropped against you. Government leaves you alone. You can go back to being a private citizen. They're not, you know, they're not raking through your taxes, questioning whether you're actually tithing and giving donations and such, uh, which is what they do. They said, did you really give this to church? Did you really give this to Vanderbilt? Did you? Yeah, screw you. Yes, I did. Um, Here's my receipt. Rod does go to jail, though. Yes. Still in jail. Yes. There's been a, a large campaign on getting him pardoned by President Trump. Between his, Rod's wife and other people in, in in the world of politics, and I know you've made some attempts as well. Um, talk about your relationship with your brother now, and I want you specifically to relate it to your mother's final words to you and where you are today and, and what you wish would have happened differently. You know, I know my mom, uh, who's, who lived longer than my father by 10 years, said, look, when I'm gone, you only have each other. Um, and they always told us that even as we were growing up, uh, so take care of each other. Well, we grew up, went our own ways, had our own careers. And, uh, I think I, I think, I think I took that a little bit more to heart than my brother may have over the years. Uh, and so after the trial, uh, my brother and I talked, but it was strained because of his antics and things that he said to me during the trial, some of which I put in the book, uh, that I thought was reasonable to put in, but other stuff that still to this day bother me um, about where his head was. Uh, But yes, he went on trial alone without me, was found guilty, ultimately sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. He's in uh, Littleton, Colorado. If you're you're indicted or convicted federally, you have to spend at least 85% of that sentence. There's no you know, there's no cutting it by, you know, to 40% or 50%. It's law, mm-hmm. which is to me very, very harsh. Um, and I had my final conversation with my brother is private, but um, the last conversation we had was the day that he was found guilt, sentenced to 14 years. Um, and a Months later, a year about a year later, I'd, I'd written to him several times, never heard anything from him. My I'm estranged from my sister-in-law and my nieces. There's no really very, no direct contact. I find out about how Rod's doing by his, through his lawyers. But I did go to Littleton, Colorado to try to go see my brother. And I even tried to get myself on his visitors list. I requested it through him. And I just assumed maybe that I got on the list and I've never heard back from him. So I showed up one day and came through the door and there's the desk. And you can see the, 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 the TVs, monitors inside the prison, people moving around uh, and very sort of ominous. And I said, yeah, I'm Robert Blagojevich. I'd like to see my brother, Rod. He's here. Uh, and, you know, guy kind of stumbled around and said, well, you know, you can't see him. You're not on his, you're not on the visitors list, number one. And number two, uh, you know, we can't just let you go in and see him. So sorry. So, well, there's anyone I can call to try to see if I could get in there. Well, he's got a counselor. Every inmate in here has a counselor. So he gave me the number. I immediately called it from the car in the parking lot of the the prison and uh, left a voicemail. And 
within 15 minutes, I had a conversation with my brother's counselor. And I said, look, my brother and I are estranged. He didn't put me on the list. Uh, he, I guess he doesn't want to see me. How's he doing? And uh, he said, well, he's doing, you know, he's re- adjusting and adapting relatively well. Um, I said, I bet you say that to any family member uh, who calls in. He said, no, 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 I'm, ser- I'm sincere. I mean it. He's doing fine. I said, well, please tell him his brother came to see him uh, and, you know, wants to hear from him. And that's as close as I, I have come to having any kind of contact with my brother. And that was in 2011. Hmm. A little Serbian family insider. That's like a Serbian parents <laughs> cultural like nightmare. The, the estrangement of one's kids to each other. I mean, that's, and you know this, in our culture, that is so incredibly just pushed mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Family's your number one priority, period. That's it. Everything else comes after. I hope you guys figure it out. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I've been very lucky. The Chicago media has been very gracious in reaching out to me. I did a lot of promotion of my book in Chicago when the book came out. Anytime I did a public thing in Chicago, the media covered me. Um, and they they have made my transition into this part of my life very, very easy. Uh, fairly easy, that is. Uh, and the ability to talk about it openly and have a constituency that might be interested in hearing what I have to say has been very, very fulfilling to me. And um, I'm grateful to the, all the friends that I've made along the way who I never thought I would meet uh, as a result of this to include the Chicago press, which is an incredible irony to me. Hmm. Well, we're running up on time, but one hell of a story. I mean, I've heard it before, but it's, uh, and I've read the book and obviously I'll link the book and everybody as much as we've talked about it here, there's so much more in the actual book. But the question I like to ask everybody at the end of their interview on this podcast is if you could go back to 18 year old Robert and say one thing, knowing all that you know and knowing all that you know about yourself at this point, if you could go back to 18 year old Robert, what is one piece of advice you would give yourself? My response would be along a business line. Mm-hmm because I was brought up in a very value-based family environment. And so the values of being truthful uh, and being good to my fellow man are part of who I am. Uh, and I am a strong adherent of the, of the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. Uh, but if, if I were to think back to when I was 18 years old, didn't know a damn thing, I remember trying to understand what a mutual fund was and other different products that were very early in their, in their development. Uh, when I was in high school, it would be start buying passive income realty, start buying real estate, because that ultimately to me is a golden pathway to people who are able to save, take a risk, Uh, and create wealth for themselves in a way that I never expected was possible. So it would have been related to being entrepreneurial in the real estate world. Well, and that entrepreneurial real estate world is what allowed for you to do all the things that you do today in the last decade and pay for your defense. And, you know, I know you're going to Tampa tomorrow to spend three months down there and have your family come down and all these different things. So, uh, Rob, thank you for sharing your story. It's uh it's a long form story. This is by far the longest podcast we've ever done, but 
any parting words you want to share with the listeners? You know, I, I'm most likely older than most of the listeners on this podcast. So uh, I'll kind of talk to you all as my kids. And I would say that there's a lot of wisdom in people who have lived a lot longer than you have, who have experiences that are that have been steeled by tough decisions, difficult personal crises. And so be kind to us middle-aged people who want to talk uh, philosophy with you because there's some good little nuggets in there that you might want to pick up from them. I love it. I love it. Well, everybody, hope you enjoyed the episode. Obviously, as always, if you've got questions, concerns, ideas, constructive criticism, keywords constructive, don't just complain, offer a solution. Millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com or hit myself or Adam up on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it may be. Uh, again, Robert, thanks for sharing your story and we'll talk to you guys soon.